Hey, we're going to be in Psalms chapter 2. I guess if it's just one chapter, it would be singular Psalm 2. But uh, uh, let me catch you up to where we've been, if, if you've not been here. We've been uh, kind of hanging out in Psalms 1 and 2 over the last three weeks uh, and just kind of diving into that, asking this question, how do we root into the gospel? How do we root ourselves? And we went to Psalms uh, because Psalms kind of, I think, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 gives us two key elements of rooting into the gospel. In Psalms 1, we talked about meditating on the word. And this is what we focused on last week, that if we're going to really root into the Psalms, we've got to meditate on God's word. It means we, we need to slow down and surrender control and seek formation, not, not just information from God's word. Uh, and then Psalm 2, what we're going to focus on today is believing in the Messiah, but the more I read about this and, and thought about it, I'll be honest, uh, the, the kind of main point of my sermon changed like six times through this week of writing it. That just happens. I'll, I'll have this, I'll start writing my sermon and think, no, nope, that's not the right word. And so this happened over, and in fact, uh, on the title of your bulletin, it says following the Messiah. Guess what word I'm not using anymore? Following. I started out, I got there, and then I changed my mind again. So um, that's just kind of how, how it goes. But if you read Psalm 2, Psalm 2 doesn't say believe in the Messiah, uh, the final verse, verse 12, says, uh, take hold of, paid homage to. The literal Hebrew is kiss the Messiah. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then it says, take refuge in the Messiah. Uh, so, so yeah, belief is a part of that. But I feel like we, we do ourselves a major disservice in the church by allowing belief to be the end-all, be-all to our relationship to the Messiah. I think it needs to go deeper than that. So the question is, well, what word do we use then? Do we say, uh, trust the Messiah? That was my next one, and I think that kind of conveys the same thing. Do we say, follow the Messiah? If you ask Jesus into your heart. That's one that we use sometimes. Uh, give your life to the Messiah. Admit, believe, and confess in the Messiah. And all of those are really churchy words. And if you've kind of been with me for the last few months, I've kind of been on this kick where I'm trying to get outside of the churchy words to gain new perspective on things. Because we kind of lock ourselves into this church lingo that no one outside the church really understands, but we kind of understand it because we've grown up here. And I think there's something more to this, that there's something deeper going on. So, so what's the word we'll use? We'll get there. Um, I'll start off by saying this and try to set this up and lead us to it. When I was in high school, uh, I graduated high school at like 160 pounds, ran cross-country track, super skinny, twig of a kid. I think I've told this before. By the end of my freshman year of college, I weighed 225. You want to talk about, not just freshman 15 at that point, it's like freshman 50. Like I, I put on a bunch of weight. In my sophomore year, when I was, when I was in school, I kind of realized, man, like I have 160 to 125, there's, there's a change there, or 225. And uh, at the same time, I met this really pretty girl that was interested in talking to me. Problem was, she lived in New Mexico, and she said, hey, I, I would like to find a time this summer to come visit you. And like it hit me like, like a dump truck, like I got to do something about this before. I haven't seen this girl in seven years. She's really pretty. I'm this. Let's, let's figure out something to do about it. So I went to my roommate, and one of my roommates, his name was Josh. Uh, he, he's like six foot four, personal training major, uh, worked out all the time. He won like he was in top five most fit uh, competitions in my college, like just crazy, crazy fit guy. I was like, Josh, can I please go work out with you? Would you teach me how? Like, I need to do something before, before this summer. And he's like, yeah, sure, of course. And I'm super thankful for that because he taught me all this stuff about, like, how to exercise, how, how to lift weights appropriately and, and with the right form and, like, why to do what, what day and when and how to do your, all this stuff that I would just have had no idea 
about. But, but imagine this, right? Imagine this. Imagine, like, I go to my roommate Josh, and I'm like, dude, you've got this figured out. I don't. I really, really need your help. Can I go to the gym with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so I'm like, all right, sweet. I'm going to follow you to the gym. I'm going I'm to follow you to the gym. And so I follow him all the way to the gym, and he gets there, and, and he's working out, and I'm, like, right there beside him. Man, I, I believe in what you're doing, Josh. I believe that this is going to change the world, that it's going to change you. This is awesome stuff, man. And I'm like getting other people, like, guys, come here. Like, look at what Josh is doing. Like, I believe in this. He's like, all right, Philip, well, it's your turn to lift a weight. And I'm like, ah, no, 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 no. I'm just following you and believing in you, but I don't want to lift anything. Like, that's, like, how much is going to change about me, right? Nothing, nothing. And, And I say that to say, welcome, I think, to a lot of the struggle in modern discipleship to Jesus? Because we love the idea of following and believing in Jesus. Jesus like, I believe in you and I will follow you anywhere. But the second Jesus is like, okay, now it's your turn to pick up the weight. We're like, no, 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 no. I couldn't do that. I couldn't, that is too much beyond me. That's just not, not for me. And we like allow that to be what discipleship means. You can follow Jesus, you can believe in Jesus, you can know all the information that Jesus has called you to know, but when it comes to actually like picking up the weight, don't worry about it, that's not really what he wants from you. And is that the model that the Bible presents? I don't, I don't think so. So uh, obviously, I think to be gospel-rooted means that we have some sort of relationship with, with the Messiah. By the way, let me just connect these dots for you. I did this last week, but I'll, I'll reconnect them just really quickly. The, the name, the word Christian, right, that comes from one who follows Christ or, or a little Christ. The term Christ is a Greek term for Messiah. It's not Jesus' last name. He wasn't born to Mo- Moses or Mo- Joseph and Mary Christ. He, he, he was Jesus the Messiah, So when we're talking about being Christians, we're talking about being Messiah people. So that demands that we have some sort of relationship with the Messiah. What type of relationship does Jesus expect from us then? So here's here's the word I'm taking to using, and I'll see if I can explain it. It's going to be a different one for you, okay? I'm going to use the word apprentice. We root into the gospel by apprenticing the Messiah. I got this verbiage, by the way, from a pastor named John Mark Comer. He's a pastor in... Uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and so uh, I credit where credit's due. I didn't come up with this on my own. I stole it. Uh, but th- think about it, right? Let's, let's, say, let's say you're an apprentice plumber. It's an easy one to get. I, we have a couple of apprentice plumbers in the room. Yeah. Uh, let's say you're an apprentice plumber. Why are you an apprentice plumber? So that you can go, I think what I said this morning is, so that you can go be a clown at kids' birthday parties one day? No, right? You're an apprentice plumber so that one day you might actually Plum, and that's the verb of plumber, is plum. Did you know plum is a verb? Um, yeah, that, that you might plumb a house, that you can put things together and connect it all up, that it would work. You're an apprentice so that the trajectory of your life might point you to a certain destination, that you might be a particular person or do a particular thing. The apprentice plumber apprentices so that he or she can plumb. That's the point of apprenticeship. Apprenticing Jesus means that, that one day you yourself will go and do the things Jesus did, that you'll love the way Jesus loved, that you'll live life the way Jesus lived his life. It's more than just belief. It's more than just head knowledge. Jesus is, it's more than just asking Jesus into your heart. To root into the gospel means to apprentice the Messiah. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. Let me kick us off in Psalm chapter 2. 
and, and we'll go from there. Let me, again, really quick context. Psalm 1 and 2 are the introduction psalms to this entire book of psalms. It's this collection of these poems and songs that the Hebrew people had wrote, prayers, personal prayers, over a span of like 800 years. They would keep these kind of in the temple, and they would pull them out for a particular Saturday synagogue worships, and they would sing them together in choirs and pray them out loud and all this other stuff. By, by the time Babylon comes in and, and ransacks Jerusalem and destroys the temple, the Israelites are left wondering, how do we worship God when we don't have our temple anymore? How do we praise the creator that told us this is the way to praise me and we can't go into the temple and offer sacrifices? And so they, they compiled all of these psalms into one book. And the idea is that, that you kind of have a portable temple with you, that you can trace back and remember your ancestors and the promises that they relied on and the prayers that they prayed. And even when you couldn't go to the temple, you could still connect with God in, in this way. So Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of setting the tone for, for all of this. And the big one of this is Psalm 1, meditating on the instruction of God. And Psalm 2, finding hope in the promised Messiah. Let me read it for you. Psalm 2, chapter 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, and all who take refuge in him are blessed. Father God, just let this word speak to us. Let us know it well. Let us know how we relate to the Messiah. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what's Psalm 2 doing? It's contrasting two, two groups of people. You, you have over here your evil kings and rulers of the world, your ungodly people that seem to control this whole thing. And then over here you have the anointed one. Hebrew, the, the word is Meshiach. It's where we get our word. Messiah, right? Connecting all, all this up, we just transliterate it right over into the word Messiah. So th this is right off the bat, verse, verse 2. The kings of earth take their stand. The rulers of earth conspire together against the Lord and his Messiah. Now we're already starting to ask these questions. Who's the Messiah? What does this mean? How does this entail? Here's the cool thing. Uh, if you've been following Psalm 1 and you've been meditating on Scripture, particularly the Torah, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you've been reflecting on this up until now, that term Meshiach or Messiah it's going to trigger some memories for you. In fact, it's going to trigger this, this entire theme throughout Scripture up, up until this point. So if, if you'll give me just, just a few minutes here, uh, I want to take, uh, I, I kind of take into calling this nerding out. So I'm just, I want, to, I want to nerd out through the Old Testament with you really quickly. If you're like, Philip, I don't like the Old Testament. Just bear with me, I promise. I, I think you need to understand this to understand what this term Messiah. So if we understand that, we need to start out Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, you have a couple, their name's Adam and Eve, first people God ever made. He created them in perfection. He placed them in this perfect garden. Things were good. He gave them one command. Hey, don't, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The, the command essentially is, hey, you let me define what is good and evil, 
not yourselves. And the second you decide to define what is good and evil on your own terms, the second you decide to eat this fruit, it will forever break you. You will die. Of course, we know Satan, the snake, serpent, comes in and tempts Adam and Eve, and they eat of the fruit, and they fall. And then Genesis 3 is God dealing with this fallout. So he's giving all of these repercussions of the fall that man's going to have to start working the, the field, and there's going to be labor, birth labor, all this other stuff that God's carrying with this. But then in chapter 3, he makes this, this little promise that there's going to be one that comes from Eve that's going to crush the serpent's head, but the serpent's going to bruise his heel, and then it just leaves it there hanging. We're like, what is, what is that all about? What, what does that have to do? And we're picking up these nuances of there is going to be some man come someday that's going to crush evil and, and rebellion once and for all, but we don't know who that's going to be or when that's going to come. And then we get right to the next chapter and we get two new characters, Cain and Abel, right? And, and Cain finds that uh, God looks on Abel's sacrifice favorably, but not his. He gets upset about it. It, it kind of eats away at him. And so God goes directly to Cain and God tells Cain, hey, Sin is crashing at your door, ready to devour you, but you must rule over it. And already, we're whisked right back to chapter 3, where, where God tells Adam and Eve, hey, you guys need to rule over this, and they fail. And now we're wondering, hey, is Cain going to be the one that rules over evil and temptation where, where Adam and Eve failed? And right after God tells them this, do you know what Cain goes and does? He goes from jealousy to murder in about zero to 60 in, in half a second, like that. Cain fails like, well, if it's not Cain, then who? And the world descends into further and further chaos until it looks irreparable. And finally, God raises up a guy named Noah, and he calls Noah out, and he says, Noah, you're going to build an ark because I'm getting rid of this whole thing. We're going to hit the reset button. And we're like, well, maybe Noah's the, the promised one that's going to crush sin once and for all. And God saves him from this flood by building a boat. And the second they get off the boat, Noah goes and gets drunk and, like, lays naked, and his kids have to cover him up. And it's this whole Bible story, yeah. Well, if it wasn't Noah, then who was it? And this world devolves into chaos even more because of sin. Finally, God intervenes again, and he calls out a guy named Abraham. It was Abram, but God changes his name to Abraham and says, Hey, fr from you, I'm going to raise up a generation of people that, that this world is going to be blessed by. You just need to follow me. And he calls him to the land of Canaan, this promised land. And when Abraham gets there, he finds that the, the, the land is in famine. And God says, this is the land I've promised you. And you know what Abraham says? Nah, I'm heading to Egypt to see you. And he leaves. He goes to Egypt, and there when he's in Egypt, he's scared that Pharaoh's going to try to kill him. So he tries to, to sell his wife to Pharaoh to, to get away from that because, you know, the promise that God made to me, I don't need a wife for that, I guess. And, and Abraham fails. Well, if it's not Cain, and it's not Noah, and it's not Abraham, maybe it's one of his kids. And story after story, we find that they, they are confronted with this question on whether they'll rule over sin or it will rule over them, and they fail over and over and over again. So finally we get to one of Abraham's great-grandchildren. His name's Judah. And Judah gets this promise that a king is going to come from his lineage and that the whole world is going to follow this, this king. And there's going to be peace and harmony. It's going to be like it was back when Adam and Eve lived in the garden. We're like, oh, maybe it's going to be Judah's son, and instead what we get is... Israel is enslaved by Egypt. 
And then from that, God raises up Moses, and Moses fails. And from that, God raises up Joshua, and Joshua fails. And from that, he raises up the judges, and the judges fail. And, and everything just seems to be plunging into further and further chaos until we get to the book of 1 Samuel. And all of a sudden, there's this young boy named David, and, and he's from the, the king of the line of Judah. Like, he's from that promised line. And they anoint him as king. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed one. Maybe it's going to be this one. And David grows up and he becomes king. And we're thinking maybe this is the time that the sin crusher has been born and come to find out the same sin that has made every other person fall beforehand infects David just as much. And he fails. And in 2 Samuel, God comes to David and he renews the promise that he had given to Judah earlier. Hey, David, from your lineage, there's going to be one that will come and rule on the throne forever. And then David has a son named Solomon and he's like the wisest person that's ever existed. And we're like, surely Solomon's going to be the one. There's been no other person smarter than Solomon. And come to find out Solomon's just as infected. He squanders the kingdom and when he dies, it goes into civil war and it splits and eventually... Just bad king after bad king, chaos after chaos, and the Babylonians come in and they ransack Jerusalem and destroy everything. And welcome to Psalm chapter 2. We're left wondering, has God just abandoned his plan? How's God going to raise a king when there is no throne to even be set, set upon? And Psalm 2 begs the reader to remember that from Adam to Cain to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah all the way to David, God has continually been faithful. So why would he stop now? It's this call to lean into the promised Messiah. So how are they to do this? What are they supposed to do? Psalm 2 verse 12. Pay homage to the son. Anybody's translations here say kiss the son. That's a weird one, right? We, we don't usually say kiss in that connotation, but you, you guys have seen like cartoons and children's shows where there's a king and he's got like rings on his finger and you go kiss the king's hand, right? Like th that's the kind of idea behind this. It's submission. I entrust my life and my personhood and my well-being and, and my economy and my money to this king, right? Kiss the king, kiss the Messiah. And it's going to go down and say, take refuge in the Messiah. The Greek or Greek, the Hebrew word is, is hosa. That may not sound very familiar to you, but it's the same root word as another word called Hosanna. You guys heard that, that Hebrew word before? It's a cry, save us. Hosanna. This is what they cry out when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, right? Hosanna, save us, king. It's from this, Hosa. Take refuge in, be saved by this Messiah. And here's the point of Psalm 2. The one who recognizes this Messiah, promised from Genesis as the eternal king, who, who submits to him and lays down their life before him, this is what God is looking for in someone who trusts him. But this starts to beg all of these other questions. What does it look like to submit to this king? What does it mean to take hold of him? What does it mean to, to take refuge in the Messiah? And in order to answer that, we get this really cool thing that they didn't have when they were in exile called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. We get to open them up and see exactly how Jesus lays it out. When Jesus says, I am the Messiah, here's what I expect of you when you trust me. So, fast forward to, to the Gospels. By the way, if you want to, you can open up to Matthew 11 uh, next. That's where we're going to be for the next portion of this. But in Matthew chapter 11, 
we, we get this story of Jesus just kind of talking to his disciples. And this is the interesting thing because in Matthew, really in all the Gospels, Jesus is already using a, a form, a system that has been set up. He's using a relationship that has already been normalized in his culture. It's the relationship of rabbi and student. Now, we don't know much about that because we don't live in ancient Israel, so we, we don't understand that well. So let me just kind of wrap this up for you. Uh, in, in ancient Israel, the Jewish education system was threefold. We actually talked about this last Easter, if you remember. Uh, threefold, you start out with what's called um, the, the Bet Sefer, or, or the house of the book. Um, this is five to 12-year-olds just learning Torah, and you're going to go into school. You're going to memorize Torah. They're going to pour it into you like an ox. I don't know what that means, but that's from like the, the Mishnah, like Take a kid and pour the Torah into him like an ox. So then once you turn 12, almost 13, you're, you're usually, if you're a working class and your dad needs you to help with the boat catching fish or he needs you to be out on the farm, you're going to get pulled out of that and go to work for your family, take care of those types of things. If you're higher middle class, you might get to stick around a little bit longer into what they call Bet Talmud or, or House of Learning, Bet Talmud. Um, so this is 13 to 17 years old, just going to the synagogue and doing school, learning even more about who God is and, and how this whole system works and what God's promised. And then if you're just like best of the best, this is like your PhD, brightest students, you could sign up and try out for what was called Talmudium. This was the idea that a rabbi would come into town and he would go, who, who's those that are eligible for the Talmudium? And he would just grill you. I mean, like, what was Gamaliel's interpretation of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6? And if you didn't have an answer, he'd be like, well, you're not cut out for this, and he would go somewhere else. Like, but, but if you, you were the brightest shining star right there in that school, then you know what that rabbi would say to you. Follow me. And this would start you on this journey for the next four, five, six years of your life where you would spend every waking moment with this rabbi. You would follow him, you would trust him, you would eat what he would eat, you would go where he went, you would sleep where he slept. I mean, he would become your rabbi and you would start trying to become like him. You would try to match uh, just, just his tone of voice, his walking cadence. You would become the carbon copy of this rabbi. You would do what he did. So what does it mean to take refuge in the Messiah? What does Jesus tell his followers? It's this relationship, follow me. But, but while for the Jewish elite, this was reserved for the smartest of the smartest, the best of the best, who's Jesus going to and telling this to? Fishermen. And by the way, it's not just the 12. There's 12 apostles, but there's more disciples than just that. There's 100 plus people that follow Jesus around, men, women, uh, people from all walks of life. Jesus is not interested in your qualifications. He's interested in your dedication. So he's going to say, come fo follow me. So when we say this, what do we expect? What does Jesus expect by taking refuge in the Messiah? We might say, follow him. That's, that's biblical. We might say, uh, be a disciple of him. But I still like this word apprentice. You take refuge in the Messiah by apprenticing the Messiah. You root into the gospel by apprenticing Jesus. And what does that apprenticeship look like? Well, looking at the system, you would expect it to be this grueling, difficult challenges and hard situations and stressful tests, but that's not the way Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, Jesus says this. Verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I love this. Because in Psalm 2, we expect that Jesus is going to bring refuge from corrupt leaders and ungodly rulers. And and while that's absolutely true, Jesus takes this promise to a completely new level. His promise here is to bring refuge from the chaos of life, the chaos that you create on yourself, the chaos that other people create for you. And he's saying, I will rescue you out of that chaos. How? By giving you a new lifestyle. By rewriting the way you view life. Here's the thing with Matthew 11, we, we really, right, if you've been in church, you've heard this passage, I guarantee it. We love the platitude of Matthew chapter 11, but I'm not sure how much we understand it, because if you take two seconds, right, we talk about meditating on the word, you take two seconds to meditate on this, it is crazy paradoxical, right? Imagine, like, hey, who in here is tired? Anybody in here tired? You, you weary right now? What do you need? You're like, a nap, that would be great. A vacation would be wonderful. I'm like, ah, what do you need? I have a hammer and some nails. What do you mean? That's a work utensil. But this is what Jesus says. Come to me, who you who are weary and restless. And he does say, I will give you rest. But then he says, take up my yoke upon you. You don't know what a yoke is? This is a farming culture, right? This is what you, you strap your donkey, your oxes to, and then they carry the plow forward or they carry the cart forward. Jesus says, hey, who you who are restless, I got work for you to do. I'm like, what, Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 but it's, it's my work. It's my yoke. Like, Jesus, I just need a mattress, man. I don't, and Jesus says, trust me. Take on my yoke. It's this invitation to join alongside Jesus, to walk life at his pace, to match him step for step, to trust him, to carry the load and enjoy his rest. And, and by the way, I will say, Jesus did take naps. It's biblical. You watch him do it on boats all the time. So when you join up with, with the yoke of Jesus, that does include naps. So thank you, Jesus. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's a good amen, right? But this is Jesus' invitation to us. Take on his yoke. Like, I, I can't really, I don't know how to put this into words well enough yet, but it's like the older I get, the more emotional weight is on my life. And like, I get it. I don't even have kids yet. And it's like, that's going to like quadruple or even more than that, I'm sure, when it comes to like a small, innocent, living creature that I have to take care of. But do you guys ever feel like the older you get, there's just more emotional weight? You, you turn on the news, you wonder like, when are gas prices going to drop? How am I going to afford to, and there's just this emotional weight of life. And if you don't have that, please share me your secret because I, I would love to get rid of that. And I'm wondering, like, does there come a point that, like, I retire and that goes away, but the people I talk to are retired, still seem to stress and worry about stuff like this? Like, there's an emotional weight to life. And if, right, you're in college, you're like, yeah, I get it, Philip. It's super hard. Just get ready. Like, it gets more hard, I guess, you know? So what do we do with this emotional weight? And so often what we do as a church is we tell people, yeah, there's an emotional weight to life. What you need to do is you need to come to church and pray and read your Bible. And we just take this as the extra to-do list and, and we just layer it over top of whatever the world's already telling people they need to do. And they just come out the other end more stressed out, more worried than what they were to begin with. Let me just say this. If we don't get 
what this means, what Jesus is promising. We end up making discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus the Messiah, just an extra weight of life. And you're probably saying, Philip, I'm, I'm already so busy. I barely have time to go to my own kids' basketball games. And now you're telling me that on top of all of this, I need to come to church, read my Bible, spend time in prayer, love my enemy, go the second mile, turn the other cheek. I can't do that. And you're absolutely right, you can't. Nor can I, nor can anyone in this room put their to-do list up and check off every item. You will drive yourself insane trying to do it. And welcome to why I think so many churches are miserable. Because we tell people all the time, you just need to come and you just need to check these off the list and your life will get better and there won't be any stress and don't worry about it. You got it figured out. Go on. Be in peace. And you do that enough Sundays in a row and eventually you find out it's not working and you just kind of go crazy. Is this what Matthew 11 is promising us? Hey, take on my yoke. I'll stress you out even more. No, absolutely not. Matthew 11 is this promise that Jesus has come to bring rest. So how do we do it? What you need is not an extra set of rules and rituals. You need a new life as an apprentice of the Messiah. You need to take refuge. You need to take on his yoke. You need Talmudium to follow your rabbi. It means three things. We're going to go through these really, really quickly. We could do a sermon series on each one of these three things, but I'm just going to hit these and we'll be done. Number one, you need to be with Jesus. Jesus is aware that life without him, right next to his disciples, what was going to be hard. So there's this whole section at the end of the book of John before he goes to be crucified that he's talking to his disciples and he's just constantly saying, I am going to send you a helper. The Spirit is going to come. Being with Jesus may demand living in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, it's not like Jesus of Nazareth is walking through Portales today and we get to go follow him on his road trip to Clovis. But he has given us his spirit and he said, live in my spirit. Be with me. How, how do we do that? You got to come back in the month of May. That's all we're going to talk about through the month of May. But, but just for now, let me just challenge you. Live in a constant state of awareness and connection to the Holy Spirit. Live, live moment by moment. Slow down. Breathe in. Breathe out. Pray this prayer. God, you've, you've been here all along. I've not been. I've been dealing with my children. I've been dealing with my job. And I've totally missed you. But I'm here now. Let me enjoy your presence. Just make that a regular practice in your life. Let that be after you, you tuck your kids in at night, after you close the book, after studying, after you get home from work. God, you've been here all along, and I've missed you. I need to be with you. Would you be with me? Just, just be with God. And as you live life with Jesus, become like Jesus. Be with Jesus and become like Jesus. We call this sanctification or, or spiritual formation uh, are churchy words of, of saying this, but I, I would just say, when we say become like Jesus, we're not just talking behavioral modification. So often we, we get our apprenticeships and our discipleship. A good apprentice, a good disciple is one who does not fill in the blank, dance, play cards. I don't know what Baptists say anymore, but those things. And a good disciple is one who does read his Bible and pray. And, and we just leave it at this kind of ethics, behavioral modification and that's just not what the Bible promises. The Bible promises transformation, that God would change you from the inside out, that, that you wouldn't just have your behavior modified, but it would be easier to love your enemy than hate your enemy. That he would transform you so that it would be easier to trust God than it would be to worry and stress about bills at the end of the month. 
I mean, become like Jesus. And as you become like Jesus, guess what you get to start doing? You get to start doing what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. You could fit a whole entire year of sermons right, right on to this. But for now, I'll just remind you. An apprentice plumber is not about knowing all about plumbing and then going and working as a clown. An apprentice plumber is about getting to the point that you yourself go and plumb. Taking your refuge in the Messiah, in Jesus, means building your life around him, being with him, becoming like him, doing what he did. And if you make this just, just an extra hobby in your life, if this is just a little compartment, the things you have to add on to the other things you do, it will not work. You will go crazy. If Jesus is just an aside to the main point of your life, you will fail and never live as Jesus intended you to live. I'm not telling you you need to quit your job and go be a pastor. But I'm telling you that when you do your job, you ask, how would Jesus do this? And how am I with Jesus when I do my job? The focal point of your life is your apprenticeship to Jesus of Nazareth. And we're inviting you to do that, First Baptist. Jesus is inviting you to do that. And not just us, this is the invitation of Christ written in Scripture. We just, as the church, get to be a way of helping each other to do that. And how do we get to do that? Because Jesus came and he died and he conquered not just Psalm 2, the rulers of the world and the kings, but evil itself. He is the sin crusher. He's eliminated it once and for all that even though the serpent bit his heel and he died on the cross, three days later he comes back and he destroys evil once and for all, not so that we can just go to church and sit here that we can apprentice the Messiah and be like him and go and show Portalis that there is a world out there that's new and a fresh perspective of life if they would just entrust themselves to the Messiah. Does Portalis see that in First Baptist? Does Portalis see that in me? Does Portalis see that in you? Because here's the thing, no one can force you to do that. We, we can get all the programming in the world and we can have the best, most dynamic Bible studies and still fail to do this. You have to do this. So the question we close with is what type of church are we? What type of church do we want to be? We said this year, we, we want to be a gospel-rooted church. But that demands you go out and apprentice the Messiah. You, in your job, in your school, in your workplace. Go out and apprentice the Messiah. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. And, and let me just ask this. Do, do you think Portalis might look different if everyone in this room went and did that? If we were all Jesus in our workplaces, as Jesus in our families, if we did what Jesus did, if we lived like Jesus lived, but we can't do it without you being the one that goes and does it. So go, apprentice the Messiah, and trust that he can make a difference. And maybe you're saying, Philip, I don't even know the Messiah. Man, let me just tell you, evil has been vanquished, sin has been forgiven. You can receive that right here, right now, by just laying your life down. Kiss the Messiah and take refuge in him. Submit to him, lay your life down. And if you want to pray about that, I'll be right here. I would love to talk with you more. If not, then ask yourself this week, how do I apprentice the Messiah? Father God, thank you for being our Messiah. Thank you for the story of Scripture. It's incredible. It's wonderful. It's powerful. God, help us to see the majesty in your, in your word. But God, help us not to be people who hear 
and then go on, as James says, as someone that looks in a mirror and then forgets what we look like. But, but let us go be doers of this. Let us put this into practice. Let us live the way Jesus lived. Let us take his yoke upon us, match him step for step. God, follow him in full reliance on you so that even when the storm's raging around us, when the world's chaotic, we can trust in the one that is more powerful than the storm. God, let us be a church that apprentices the Messiah. It's in Christ's name we pray.